Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Scripture text that will serve as a basis of our meditation on this Sunday before Christmas is taken from the the seventh chapter of the book of Isaiah, the 14th verse, and we are considering the theme this morning, the perfect Christmas friend. And these words are familiar to all of you. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Dear friends in Christ, I would have to say that one of the most humbling parts of the Christmas season for Marilyn and me, and I'm sure that Pastor Mike and Jessica would agree with me here, is the overwhelming generosity that pastors oftentimes find themselves receiving from their parishioners and friends of the congregations where they serve. Over the years, many of you have given Marilyn and me wonderful and beautiful and meaningful and tasty gifts. And for that, we are very, very thankful. And Mike's shaking his head. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. But among some of my favorite items that I've gotten from people or that we've gotten from people in the congregation would have to be a number of nativity sets that we love to display in our home throughout the Christmas season. For example, there's the very fancy and expensive one that we received from our former congregation in Naples, Florida as a going away gift. There's one of these nativity sets that we have in our home that you open up and it reveals the the holy family all tucked away in Bethlehem stable. There's another one that you can wind up and it doubles as a music box as as well as a nativity scene. We have large manger sets, we have medium-sized ones, and we have very tiny and delicate ones. And all of these sets feature the key players in the Christmas story, namely Mary and Joseph and, of course, the baby Jesus. And some of them expand to include the shepherds and the wise men as well. But there is one figure missing in all of these manger scenes and nativity sets that I really wish was there, but I understand why he isn't there, because he wasn't present that night. That's for sure. Truth of the matter is, he wasn't present until, uh, well, he was present a thousand years before in this world, before the birth of Christ himself. And so the, but, but the, the point I'm getting at here is that he, he pops up in the Christmas story from time to time. For example, in uh, Luke 2, verse 4, we read, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. So David is the one that I'm talking about. Now, why would I want to talk about David on this day that finds us just three days removed from our annual celebration of our Savior's birth? My reason is very simple. It's because I believe that David reminds us more than anyone else in the Bible of just how far God will go to prove to us that he really is our Emmanuel, which means God with us. So let me show you uh, what I mean by all of that. Let's take a, a good look at David this morning. And I'd like to begin by taking a look at David the Persecuted. Life was not always easy for David. He was the youngest of eight sons to begin with, which I'm sure was a big challenge in and of itself right there. His father's name was Jesse. The whole family lived in the small town of Bethlehem, just a few miles from Jerusalem. Well, one day, a prophet by the name of Samuel showed up at Jesse's home in order to anoint the next king over Israel. Samuel had been led there by God himself who told him that the next king of Israel was going to be one of Jesse's sons. He just didn't tell him which one it was. 
And so Jesse then proudly paraded his seven oldest sons before the prophet Samuel. And, and Samuel thought some of these looked like real kingly material to me, but that wasn't God's perspective because God made it very clear to him that none of those seven sons of Jesse was going to be the next king of Israel. And so by this time, Samuel was a little bit confused, and he asked Jesse, do you have any other sons? To which Jesse replied, yes, there is still the youngest, but he is tending the sheep. Now that word youngest in the Hebrew language is a very interesting word. It's not a very complimentary term to David. The word itself is hakaton. Kind of sounds like you're clearing your throat. Hakaton. The English equivalent of hakaton would be R-U-N-T, runt. You see, before David was King David, before he was the slayer of giants and the singer and writer of psalms and the conqueror of kingdoms, he was Davy, little Davy. You can almost hear his older brother saying, whose turn is it to watch Davy today? Not my turn. I watched him yesterday. Well, I watched him the day before. I'm not going to watch him today. I don't like watching Davy because he follows me everywhere I go and he's always asking me questions. Davy was the runt of Jesse's family. Not exactly the favorite, certainly not exactly respected. But then came the time when Davy, now I would call him David though, did the seemingly impossible. And you all know this story well. He killed the mighty Philistine giant Goliath with his trusty slingshot. And just like that, David was catapulted into star status in the nation of Israel. Now, about that same time, David, who was also a fine musician, was given a place in the court of Saul, the king of Israel. And David's role there was to play soothing music for Saul because Saul had a real problem with bad moods. But when the news started coming in to the palace and the rave reviews were all about David and how he had defeated Goliath, Saul became insanely jealous of David. And on two separate occasions, he threw his spear at him while he was playing soothing music for him. Wasn't very soothing, was it? He tried to pin David to the wall, but David managed to escape both of those times. And rather than wait around for a third time, he decided to flee from the presence of Saul. And listen to this. For the next 10 years of his life, David was running and hiding from this jealous king. So David was persecuted. Now you might be thinking, well, that's pretty interesting, Pastor Meyer, and, and that hackathon thing was kind of neat, but what does all this have to do with Christmas? Well, I'm getting there. Just be patient with me this morning and you'll find out. Having looked at David the persecuted, we now want to move on to our next point, which would be David the paradox. You see, David was one David one day, and the next day he'd be an entirely different David. It was like he had different sides, different personalities. He was a hodgepodge of emotions. For example, when David went out to fight the Philistine giant Goliath, he was a young man just brimming over with confidence and trust in God. As Goliath mocked and trash-talked this runt of a human being standing in front of him, David gave it right back to Goliath. I love what he says to him. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. That's what you call confidence, isn't it? But David wasn't always that confident in the Lord. For example, in Psalm 13, we find this 
slayer of giants, crying out to God in complete and utter despair and desperation. He says, how long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will my enemy triumph over me? So sometimes David's relationship with God was hot, and sometimes it was cold, very cold. Another paradox that we see taking place in David was how he handled different types of opposition that came his way from a variety of sources. For example, one of those opponents that David had to deal with was a fellow by the name of Nabal. Now, I think that had to have been a nickname because Nabal in Hebrew means fool. And I can't imagine any Hebrew woman, any Israelite or Jewish woman naming their brand new son fool. So it had to have been a nickname, and and Nabal pretty well lived up to that nickname because what happened here was that David, without being asked, he and his band of fighting men were providing protection for Nabal and his, uh, for his servants and his sheep and his shepherds out there in the wilderness. And I'm sure that David was hoping for some sort of remuneration from Nabal for this, but Nabal wasn't interested in giving David anything. And so David's initial reaction to his men was, put on your swords, fella, we're going to go teach this Nabal fella a thing or two about common courtesy. Contrast that way of dealing with opposition on David's part to another time that he dealt with opposition, only this time the opposition came from his own son, Absalom. Absalom tried to take the kingdom away from his father, and and he led a revolt against David that forced David to flee for his life from the city of Jerusalem. And yet when David's men and Absalom's men became embroiled in a bitter battle, David felt nothing but compassion and love for his son. And he gave his commanding officer, Joab, and as well as all of his soldiers, strict instructions that if in that battle the opportunity should arise for for them to kill Absalom, they should refrain from doing that. Instead, they should spare the young man's life. Now, I could go on and on like this the rest of the morning, talking about different paradoxes that existed in David. But again, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, all this is nice to know, Pastor Meyer, but why in the world are we studying David just a few days before Christmas? I'm getting real close to answering that question for you. But before I do, we have to look at one more side of David. We focused upon David the persecuted and David the paradox. Now we've got to look at David the pitiful. Two names are indelibly associated with David in the Bible. You know what they are, I bet. The first one is Goliath. We've already talked about him, the champion warrior of the Philistines. The second one would have to be Bathsheba, the bathing beauty of Jerusalem. In both of those stories, a giant falls. In the first one, that giant is Goliath. In the second one, the giant is, guess who? David. You see, by the time we get to the story of Bathsheba, David is a giant in his own right. He's no longer the runt of Jesse's household. He's no longer the harp strummer in the court of King Saul. Rather, he himself is now king of Israel, and things could not be going any better for David. Jerusalem is strong. The nation is expanding. The people are prospering. But David has one glaring weakness. And that weakness rears its ugly head 
when his armies and soldiers are out on the battlefield defending David and his kingdom. Now, to be honest with you, David should have been out there with them, leading them into battle. But for some reason that the Bible hides from us, David was not with his soldiers, but rather he remained behind in Jerusalem. And with time on his hands and power in his grasp, this giant of Israel was felled, not by an enemy's sword or spear, not by a conspiracy coming from within his own palace, but rather by lust that consumed his heart. That lust led David down a very slippery slope of adultery, lies, deceit, cover-up, and ultimately murder itself. Now we look at that chapter of David's life, and we can't help but scratch our heads and think to ourselves, is this the same David? who wrote the beautiful, comforting words of the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Is this the same David who at one point in his life is described as a man after God's own heart? Is this the same David who is willing to go up against the mighty giant, Goliath, when nobody else in the Israelite camp was willing to do so? Is this the same David who could handle the rage of an enemy army and withstand the rage of the jealous king Saul, but could not control the rage of lust within his own heart? You know, as we're asking those questions about David, I think it would be very appropriate and fitting to ask similar questions about ourselves. For don't we all have chapters in our lives that could be described as pretty pitiful, times when we fell, moments when we caved into temptation? Aren't there some pages in the scrapbooks of our lives that we wish really weren't there and we hope that nobody ever finds out about? Is there anyone among us here this morning who would stand up in front of us all today and say, you know, as I look back over my life, I have no regrets. I've lived about as perfect a life as anybody can. Anybody willing to do that? Doubtful, right? The point I'm getting at here is that David's story is really our story. We too can be paradoxical, can't we? On fire for the Lord one minute and cold as ice the next. So full of faith one day that we feel we can conquer any giant that dares to cross our path, but then so full of doubt the next day. Some of us know what it's like to be persecuted, to have spears thrown at us, not literal spears, but spears of anger, abuse, gossip, hatred. And I'm sure that there are some of you here today who know exactly what that Hebrew word hackathon is all about. You know what it's like to be the runt of the family or the runt in school or the runt in your workplace, the one that nobody else pays attention to and that's never respected and appreciated. And it's at times like that that we need to know more than any other time, is Jesus really our Emmanuel? Is he really God with us? Most importantly, is he really God with me? I know he's with me when I'm feeling good and looking good and life is sailing along smoothly for me, but is he with me when my friends walk out on me and I'm feeling completely alone? Is he with me when I hear that terrifying diagnosis from the doctor? Is he with me when I do what I can't even believe I did? The answer to that question, I believe, can be found in the very first verse of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, This is the family history of Jesus Christ. He came from the family of David. 
I don't know about you, my friends, but in the light of all that we've learned about David this morning, I think I would have kept that little bit of information a secret. I mean, how many of us would have gone around saying, hey, I'm related to David. I'm related to that liar. I'm related to that adulterer. I'm related to that murderer. Most of the time, we try to keep the bad fruit on our family tree a, a secret. We, we, we remain hush-hush about such people. But Jesus did not do that. Instead, he says to us today, I'll tell you how far I will go to be identified with you, to be identified with humanity. I will find that one person that stands for every human being who has ever lived, that one person who is about as earthy as they come, that one person who battled with right and wrong, good and evil, love and lust, and I will make myself connected to him. So what about you, my friends? Are you by any chance the runt in your family or the runt in your school or the runt in your workplace? Jesus is connected to you. Are you persecuted? He's connected to you. Are you paradoxical at times, tough to figure out? He's connected to you. He is your Emmanuel in every sense of the term. Or as I put it in my sermon title for today, he is your perfect Christmas friend. And perhaps no other passage of the Bible states this more clearly for us than Hebrews 2, verse 11, where it says, Jesus and the people he makes holy, that's you and me, all belong to the same family. That is why he isn't ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Isn't that great? No matter what you've done, no matter how far you may have fallen at different times during your life, no matter how greatly you may have sinned, Jesus still wants to be your Emmanuel, your faithful brother and friend. So I pray that that is one offer that none of us ever pass up. Now, perhaps you don't feel worthy of that. Maybe you can't wrap your brain around that kind of incredible love. And that's okay because truth be told, none of us is worthy of it. And God doesn't even ask us to understand it all. All he asks is that we receive this good news by faith with a believing and trusting heart so that all that Jesus did for us and all that he still wants to do for us as our Emmanuel will be ours to enjoy both for time and for all eternity. Amen. Be please rise.